Our scripture today is from the book of Acts, uh, chapter 13, verses 16 through 39. Uh, if you'd like to follow along, it's on page 921 in the Pew Bibles. It's a pretty uh, lengthy piece, so I'll try to read it carefully. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and those and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. For about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. They asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. Of this man's offspring, God has, promised to, has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of two feet am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And, they, and though they found him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, and in God, what God promised to the fathers, this has been, this has, he has fulfilled to, the, to us their children by raising Jesus. And this is also written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that this man's forgiveness of sins proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed, freed by the law of Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, you know, it's certainly not hard to find if you're looking for it online, but um, more and more people are interested in documenting their reasons for leaving uh, the Christian church in the numbers in which they are. Sometimes referred to as ex-evangelicals, they're coming clean on the reasons why they stopped going to church. I was reading an article recently that had a collection of stories or quotes from people about their reasons for leaving the church. Listen to a few of these. First one goes like this. says, my minister lived across the street and I used to hang out with his son who was my age and my friend. Well, his mom, the minister's wife, got brain cancer and it took her years of suffering until she died. Our minister one Sunday broke down during a service crying at the altar and cursed God. It affected me deeply. I'll bet. Second story. 
<clears throat> I asked myself, what, would I have been a Christian if I was born in a country with a predominantly different religion and my parents were of that religion? The answer was no, which made me ask, what makes Christianity more right than other religions? Hmm. Third story. The nail in the coffin for me was a service where we had to read a passage that said something along the lines of, quote, we are dust and ashes before God. And I couldn't get behind thinking that I was nothing, especially compared to an entity I had never met or heard from personally, when I already had my fair share of bullies in school trying to convince me of the same. Well, after quite a few years working with college students, I can tell you that like these are fairly common objections. But I do think it's important for us to listen to those because I think that whenever our beliefs are challenged by the secular world around us, it causes us to examine in the midst of that sort of isolation exactly what it is that we believe about these things or exactly why we believe these things. We have a passage this morning where we get to see the Apostle Paul in his very first recorded sermon. And it's a ministry that he's just launched with himself and a guy named Barnabas who are traveling throughout the towns of Asia Minor, what we know now as modern-day Turkey, doing the best to convince the world that the events that happened in Palestine a few years ago were relevant to their lives. So at the beginning of chapter 13, we find that there was a church that had been born and grew very rapidly in the ancient city of Antioch. Now, Antioch is important because it was a very, very cosmopolitan, very secular Roman city at that time that represented for Christians, though, one of the very first churches that was a majority Gentiles and not Jews as part of it. Look at those early church leaders uh, you can see. There's, an, there's a black man named Simon, almost certainly from the African continent. Lucian was from a city called Cyrene in northern Africa. There's a guy named Manaean who was either a foster brother or a relative of Herod Antipas, who clearly was of royal upper class status. And then you had Paul and Barnabas. That's the elders of that church. And the point is this, that early gathering of people was a very multi-ethnic, multi-racial mixture of believing people. And I don't think it's a coincidence that that's the reason why Antioch became the very first church to launch missionaries from it. Missionary efforts. Why? Well, because the more ethnically diverse your fellowship is, the more you begin to see that the gospel is good for everybody regardless of your culture or your background or your language. I mean, for us here in the, what we might call the Christ-haunted South, our Christianity tends to grow stale sometimes, does it not? Mostly because we live in very homogenous groups. My guess is, is that causes us also to feel a little insecure and wonder, I don't know, would my faith actually translate to other cultures? When Paul stands up to preach at Antioch and Pisidia, he's preaching to a group of religious people who are at least familiar with Judaism. They're open to hearing about the gospel, but they will be shocked when they hear exactly what it is that Paul says about the radical nature of the gospel from something different that they've been hearing up until that time. So what I want to look at this morning is how Paul presents the gospel to these people because we're in the same situation. American culture, if you haven't noticed, is secularizing fast. And if the trends continue, we, types like ourselves who would come to church on Sunday morning, are going to be in the minority fairly quickly. And so the question is, will the gospel continue to be relevant to future generations, to our children? 
And are there features in the way Paul preaches that can help us understand exactly how we ought to be presenting the gospel to this generation? I think there are, and I think there's at least three of those features, and it goes like this. We see Paul making the gospel case, we see the gospel content, and then we see the gospel conditions. Let's look at that first one, the gospel case. Look, before we start in like that, let's see who Paul is preaching to. It's easy to note because it's right there in verse 16. It says, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. All right, so Paul is talking, first of all, to Jewish people. He's also talking to what the Jews called the God-fearers. Those were the people like Cornelius that we studied about last week. So what he has is a group of people who have some kind of, of religious background and some kind of spiritually-minded worldview, if you will. So what's interesting, though, this is with this crowd, Paul makes certain that he is appealing to authorities in this congregation's life that would be compelling for that audience. And by the way, he does this all through the book of Acts, all over the place. Because the first question he deals with is, why should we listen to this? In other words, Paul is going to make his case for the gospel by making appeals to authorities that carry weight with the people that are listening. Make sense? So what does he do with these Jews and Gentile uh, God-fears? He starts with the Bible. He goes back to the Old Testament scripture. Why? Because he could count on the fact that there was a generalized respect for those writings. So that's where he roots his argument. By the way, it's very interesting that in the, in the chapters to come, when Paul has a more secular audience, he'll actually begin there by quoting from, from pagan poetry sources and literary sources. Why? Because he's trying to work to establish relevance with his audience. Now look, before we move on, there's an immediate application here. When we are seeking to bring the gospel to the Oxford, Lafayette, Mississippi world, whether they be our coworkers, friends, spouses, whatever, we first have to establish why we think this is important for them to listen to us. And in the most general sense, I think we can say that we're making two kinds of appeals. On the one hand, we're trying to make what we might call an objective appeal, but we're also trying, on the other hand, <clears throat> to make what we might call a subjective appeal. What's the difference? Well, first of all, there is a sense in which the message that we're bringing to the community is one based in objectivity. It's an objective case because what we're saying is we think these things are true. There's a conviction that every Christian has that if what the Bible says happened and Jesus actually rose from the dead, you have to pay attention to it. You either have to violently reject it, embrace it, or say there's something wrong with the person who said it. His claims are just that particularly strong. Now, you need to realize that before we start talking about truth, you're speaking a foreign language to the secular world in our, in our world now. Because there is no truth in this particular world. Truth is simply that thing that emerges from you and you alone that you call your truth. Hey, buddy, go ahead, man. Speak your truth, we say. But of course, what we're saying is, is if there is no universal truth that speaks for all of mankind, then really all you have are people's subjective opinions. Now, here's what's funny. Though people these days talk that way, please understand they don't actually act that way. Because the truth of the matter is, even the most ardent people who object to the idea that there's one truth out there in the world will be the first ones who will tie themselves up in a snit if you offend their sensibilities about something. But here's the deal, you can't have it both ways. 
You can't say on the one hand that there's no such thing as objective truth, but then insist on your beliefs when, when suddenly you happen to find them objectionable. It reminded me of someone talking about uh, life in the 60s. I was born in 1967. I'm fascinated with that decade. Some of you lived through it. But I remember people saying that there would be individuals who would be out protesting, you know, sort of the oppressive uh, 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 sexual ethic that their parents' generation was trying to foist upon them. And they were saying things like, there is no objective standard for sexuality. That's just your way of trying to exercise power over us. We can do whatever we want to do. But then the very next weekend, some of that same crowd would be out with placards walking around protesting the injustice of the Vietnam War. Now look, Christians may or may not have opinions about either of those topics. My point is, you can't say that there's no such thing as truth in one breath and then turn around and accuse people of injustice on the other in the same breath. Why? Because we're making an objective case for saying, no, we believe this is the truth and we think that it can stand scrutiny. Hmm. Okay, that's the objective case. Secondly, though, that there really is a subjective case by which I simply mean that we're trying to say to the world, hey, we think this is good for you. Uh, we think that the gospel meets the most deep aspirations of your heart and answers the basic problems of the human condition. We want you to believe the gospel because we think you need it. Now, the problem, of course, comes when you have one of these pieces without the other. Think about it for a second. Like if you, if you attempt to sort of make the subjective case about the usefulness of Christianity and leave out the objective part, what you do is, is you end up getting a faith that's purely about people's felt needs. You know what I mean by that? And the problem with rooting people's faith in their felt needs is once things get hard and difficult and suffering comes along, you're really tempted to jettison. There's nothing to root it in reality. On the other hand, though, if you only have the objective case without any appeal to people for how this speaks to their sins and their heart, then you run the risk of a faith that's purely rational. You know what I mean by that? That is, I can sort of think myself a Christian because I acquiesce to some you know, proper list of, of facts that I deem to be true. But when it comes to my particular belief and my sense of believing, ah, those questions never seem to come up because I'm too busy arguing about the details of doctrine. Now, I think this is where it gets interesting, though, because I can feel your questions. You're being like, okay, okay, I thought I knew the definition of subjective and objective, but now you're kind of confusing me. Can anybody really be certain that I'm talking to people about Christianity in the right way? Well, I think that you can, because you can simply follow what the Apostle Paul does. Look at verse 17. As he makes his case, he says, look, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. All right, did you catch that? When Paul says, our fathers, what he's saying is, is his appeal to this Old Testament story of the people of God is my story too. This is not you. This is us. We are having this experience. We are talking about our ancestors, God fears. In other words, there's a way to present the gospel to religious people that sort of roots what you, the, you, the fact that you're including yourself in their story. And once that happens, you can see, they begin to see themselves in your story. That's just the power of how stories work on us. And you know this, I'll bet. There may have been a time where you were having a conversation about why you go to church or why you believe what you believe. 
And you have, again, your list of facts. And you found these things compelling and honest with no effect whatsoever to the person you're talking about, talking to. But then all of a sudden you simply begin to share a little bit about your own heart, a little bit of a testimony of the way in which you feel like God is sustaining you through this present moment. And suddenly the lights come on. Now, why did that happen? It happened because of the power of our stories. In other words, as we begin to think about making a compelling case for the gospel in our community, don't overcomplicate it. A simple word of how Jesus has been dealing with you lately in your recent history is oftentimes a thousand times more powerful than some presentation that somebody might make that was real fancy and logical. So that's the gospel case that Paul makes that I find fascinating. Secondly, though, we need to then look at the sermon itself and figure out what he believes is the content of the gospel. This might surprise you. Throughout 16 through 25, what Paul is doing is he's making this case to say, look, I can sum it up this way. Every time you look out through our history, Jewish people, you see God was there taking the initiative of grace. Verse 17, he says, God chose all of the Jewish heroes to lead them through their escape out of Egypt. God says, I was the one who raised those people up. What's the point? The point is Paul is saying, if you just go look back through all of our personal history, which is such a big deal to Jewish people, you're going to find that God's grace and God's favor have never been earned, ever. It's always been graciously given. It's always been through these leaders that God has raised up. He finishes his sermon by making appeal to King David, of course, in verses 22 and 23. And he talks about the fact that the life of David produced a coming promised one that was to be the Lord Jesus, the one to come. And that even John the Baptist had borne witness to the fact that Jesus was who he said he was. Okay, so you see what Paul is doing. He's saying, look, the whole story of your life and your ancestry leads to Jesus. Christianity is Christ which is fascinating because what Paul did not get caught up in initially anyway were the teachings of Jesus. As important as they were, at the beginning, he focuses on the events of Jesus' life. What does he talk about? He says, first of all, he was sentenced for a crime that he didn't commit. He was the victim. He was a victim of an innocent on behalf of the guilty. And then, of all things, he was raised again from the dead. There it is again. In other words, Paul makes this case that only if Jesus was raised from the dead could the prophecy that appears, by the way, he said a psalm, it's Psalm 16, where that prophecy about David's body not seeing decay, only if Jesus is raised from the dead can that prophecy be true. See how he's reasoning? Now look, there's a ton more that we could unpack here that we do not have time for. But all I want you to see this morning is this simple fact. <clears throat> the gospel is not good advice. The gospel, is, in every other religion, what happens is, is people will say, look, if you want to live a fulfilled life, do you want to feel like, like, a, like, a, like, a, like a solid person? Here's the way. Here's the teachings. Live by those and you'll be great. But only in Christianity do you have Jesus being primarily known not as a great teacher, though he certainly was, but Jesus was primarily known for what he did while he was here. Now, isn't that curious? It should be. Look, we can say it this way. Every other religion is an exercise in showing you how you can go about working hard to save yourself. But only in Christianity is the essential nature of your relationship to God one that's based on free and unmerited grace. 
Verse 29, Paul explains that after Jesus accomplished all these things, what did they do? They took him down from the tree. Think about that. Paul is preaching to a religious audience who knew the Old Testament, which means they probably knew Deuteronomy 21, 23 that said, anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. Now, why would that have been important? Because all of a sudden they understood, so therefore he could take the curse for me so that he could offer me salvation purely on the basis of his merit, not mine. Which is so crucial to understand when we start to think about the gospel and we start to think about evangelism and the mission to sort of reach our city and our state. The gospel is not advice to follow. It's not a path that we set people on in hopes of them reaching some, some version of their ideal self. The gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. I had this brought home to me a number of years ago when it became, um, it kind of became fashionable for people to talk about the gospel of Thomas. You ever heard of this thing? So apparently uh, researchers, scholars had dug up something called the gospel of Thomas. There's a whole gospel that was out there and we, we forgot it. We forgot to put it in the, put it in the Bible, right? And, and of course the conversation died up pretty quickly. It may, maybe went on for about a year or so because the thing had zero sense of authenticity and almost no historical accuracy whatsoever. But you know what? As I had students that would start to sort of push back, like, what about the gospel of Thomas? I mean, I'm reading a Bible that's incomplete. I'd be like, I tell you what, it's online. Go back and read the gospel of Thomas. Y'all, every single time when a student actually took me up on that challenge, they all came back and were kind of like, oh, never mind. That's completely different than what the gospels are. Two different totally things. Why? <laughs> Because it never talked about the events of Jesus' life and death. It was all just about his weird teachings and strange ones at that. And my point is, is that Christians have gotten the gospel tied up in lots of things. You know, if you'll just pray this prayer, you'll be saved. Or, you know, you need to stop doing such and such. Or, well, you just need to go get, join this church and get involved. And mind you, I'm for all of those things. But hear me. Those are the effects of the gospel, not the gospel itself. And if we present the gospel in that way, you suddenly turn Christianity into this you know, system in which we plug ourselves in the hopes of self-betterment self rather than being an event that transformed the world and is something to be believed Look, the gospel of good advice, it turns out, is a whole other religion altogether. It's not even Christianity. So the gospel content are the events of Jesus' life, are they not? So that's what we see, the gospel case, the gospel content, and sets us up very nicely for the gospel conditions. This helps us sort of understand how Paul wraps up his sermon. He's made the case for relevance. He's presented its content. But then in verses 38 and 39, you see him now putting down the conditions for how it is that we are to receive this good news. Look what he says in verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed in the law of Moses. All right, now bear with me for a second. That word that appears twice that, has, that you have translated as freed is in almost every other place in the New Testament translated as the word justified. Hmm. You could translate it this way. Everyone who believes is justified. And here's my, here's my premise this morning. Nothing could have been more transformational to these people than this truth. And, and you're going to find that once people begin to really dig deep 
into what we call the doctrine of justification by grace through faith, there's hardly anything that's more transformational than this for God's people. And it's so clearly represented here. Look at that last phrase in verse 38. Through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now look, put yourself in this sermon. Here you have religious people. They get it. Everybody sins. Everybody needs to be forgiven. And if Paul had stopped at the end of verse 38 and finished there, Christianity would have been just like every other world religion, holding out, you know, appeasement, you know, for a grumpy deity, for the penitent who come and offered it to him. But when he adds verse 29 on, 39 on there and says by saying that we can be freed, justified in a way in which the law of Moses could not, Paul is saying, you know, actually this goes way beyond just forgiveness. This is way more than just forgiveness. Look, if all you have is forgiveness, then you've got your slate wiped clean. Praise the Lord. Sure. But to be justified means not only to have my slate wiped clean, but it means also to have a perfect record of perfection put back on me. In other words, if all you have is the forgiveness of the gospel, oh Jesus, please, please, please forgive me for my sins, forgive me for my sins. Once you get up from your knees, no matter how assured you feel that he answered that prayer in the positive, you still go back on probation, do you not? You go back on probation because it's like, okay, We'll let you go this time, but you never know about But you better watch out next time. You get this idea that God's got this frowny face on him, just waiting for you next time to mess up. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul says, no, justification is going to unlock the key <laughs> to the, all of the joy that exists in the gospel. Let me see if I can illustrate this in a couple ways. First of all, it'll help you know how to read the gospels in the first place. Look, over and over again, you see Jesus teaching, yes, and that teaching is certainly important. But if you read Matthew through John, you'll find that most of the emphasis is on Jesus doing stuff. You notice this? He's acting right. He's judging correctly. He's obeying his father. He, he's resisting temptation. He's even subjecting himself to, to unjust political systems. And the first time you read it, you're like, ah, uh, okay. What in the world could that have to do with me? This guy 2,000 years ago. <laughs> well, if justification is true, it means that all of the things that Jesus was doing during his life are establishing a record that you get, that your account gets. And suddenly I find that I'm, I'm now clothed in him. The Father doesn't see my record. He doesn't see me in, in the past, present, or future. He only sees what his son Jesus has done on my behalf. That, that's bigger than forgiveness. That's more than forgiveness. In other words, what the, what the gospel brings and what justification brings means that I am beyond probation. It now means that I live in a place of real assurance. And that very law, this is what's crazy, that very law, for the Jews it was the law of Moses. For you it's something else. My guess is there's something that hangs over you, some standard that you've set up that either measures your ups and downs by whether or not you're spiritually healthy. And you live by that. And it literally feels like this as you go up and down, basing everything upon your performance. No wonder we're miserable. No wonder we need therapists to help us work through it. Because now that same law, that same thing that's hanging over me, that condemns me every time I think about my life, now actually speaks on my behalf. 
In other words, that law, every time it comes up and says, I'm supposed to be someone who is a sexually pure person. Then I look for this. But Jesus was. He was. And the beauty of justification is God counts his success <laughs> over against my failure. Wow. And all of a sudden, guess what you get? You get a little whiff of joy. A little whiff of being like, ah, oh, maybe I could be freed from that thing. Paul calls that believing. That's the gospel condition. The gospel condition is to see something as being wondrous because here is provision that has been made for a helpless and hopeless person like myself. Little uh, Ronan Rapp was born with um, Tay-Sachs disease. I think that's how you pronounce it. Doug, you can correct me after or later. Uh, Tay-Sachs apparently is a very rare genetic disorder for which there is no treatment and no cure. But for little Ronan, his mother, Emily, documented his short little life in a blog, which she later turned into a book called The Still Point of a Turning World. And it's a book that captures the mind-bending heartbreak, but in a strange way, utterly beautiful experience of a mom, mother, walking and escorting her little tiny child through a terminal diagnosis and onto the grave. It's heartbreaking. But as she documents this excruciating journey with this dying child, there was, a, there was a writer who was reviewing her book who saw in her life a glimpse of a kind of love that he couldn't explain how much he wanted. At one point during his article, he says this. He says, Emily invoked a form of love that is fundamentally unconcerned with results or behavior because it couldn't be and is all the more powerful for it. In so doing, though, she allows us a peek at what uncoerced, unconditional love really looks like in human relationships. In other words, he says, when I saw this woman loving her child that way, I saw, I saw the joy of what unconditional love can really be. Now bear with me for a second. If you understand justification, it will not lead you to look at that illustration in the way in which most of us do. Even now you may be saying to yourself, oh, y'all, that is so true. Oh, can you imagine the love of a mother for a dying child? My goodness. You know what? We should all love each other more like that. Let's pray. But that's not the illustration. What the story is encouraging us to identify with is with the child. To identify with the helpless and the hopeless child that can do nothing to contribute to their salvation. Only if Jesus alone comes and accomplishes it all. That's what justification wins for God's people. And what it does is it roots us in what it means to present the gospel. Look, the gospel is relevant to your life. It's the news of Jesus' perfect person and work. And casting my joys, or what we might call our belief on it, is the only way that leads to life. So there's a question this morning. Have you believed that? Do you believe that? by invitation from the Apostle Paul. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we pray that that sermon that Paul preached so many thousands of years ago would resonate in our hearts even this morning because there is connection with that ancient people. We all are praying to the exact same God. And so we do ask that you would bring home to our hearts what it means for you to provide for us and to make provision for us in your gospel, that as we come to approach your table, we would taste it literally Father, be encouraged because of it. Would you do that? Because we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.